This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean O'Hara. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 7. Let those deplore their doom whose hope still grovels in this dark sojourn. But lofty souls can look beyond the tomb, can smile at fate and wonder how they mourn. Shall spring to these sad scenes no more return? Is yonder wave the sun's eternal bed? Soon shall the orient with new luster burn, and spring shall soon her vital influence shed. Again attune the grove, again adorn the mead. Beady. Emily, called as she had requested, at an early hour, awoke, little refreshed by sleep, for uneasy dreams had pursued her, and marred the kindest blessing of the unhappy. But, when she opened her casement, looked out upon the woods, bright with the morning sun, and inspired the pure air, her mind was soothed. The scene was filled with that cheering freshness which seems to breathe the very spirit of health, and she heard only the sweet and picturesque sounds, if such an expression may be allowed. The maddened bell of a distant convent, the faint murmur of the sea waves, the song of birds, and the far-off low of cattle, which she saw coming slowly on between the trunks of trees. Struck with the circumstances of imagery around her, she indulged the pensive tranquillity which they inspired, and while she leaned on her window, waiting till Saint-Aubert could descend to breakfast, her ideas arranged themselves in the following lines. The First Hour of Morning How sweet to wind the forest's tangled shade, when early twilight from the eastern bound dawns on the sleeping landscape of the glade, and fades as morning spreads her blush around, when every distant flower that wept in night lifts its chill head soft glowing with a tear expands its tender blossom to the light and gives its incense to genial air how fresh the breeze that wafts a rich perfume and swells the melody of waking birds the hum of bees beneath the verdant gloom and woodman's song and low of distant herds then doubtful gleams the mountain's hoary head seen through the parting foliage from afar and farther still the ocean's misty bed with flitting sails that partial sea-beams share but vain the sylvan shade the breath of may the voice of music floating on the gale and forms that beam through morning's dewy veil if health no longer bid the heart be gay o oh, balmy hour design her wealth to give your spread her blush and to bid the parent live emily now heard persons moving below in the cottage and presently the voice of michael who was talking to his mules as he led them forth from a hut adjoining as she left her room, Saint-Aubert, who was now risen, met her at the door, apparently as little restored by sleep as herself. She led him downstairs to the little parlour, in which they had supped on the preceding night, where they found a neat breakfast set out, while the host and his daughter waited to bid them good morrow. "'I envy you this cottage, my good friends,' said Saint-Aubert, as he met them. "'It is so pleasant, so quiet, and so neat, and this air that one breathes. If anything could restore lost health, it would surely be this air.' La Voisin bowed gratefully and replied with gallantry of the Frenchman, Our cottage may be envied, sir, since you and Mademoiselle have honored it with your presence. Saint-Aubert gave him a friendly smile for his compliment, and sat down to a table, spread with cream, fruit, new cheese, butter, and coffee. Emily, who had observed her father with attention and thought he looked very ill, endeavored to persuade him to defer traveling till the afternoon, but he seemed very anxious to be at home, and his anxiety expressed repeatedly, and with the earnestness that was unusual with him. He now said he found himself as well as he had been of late, and that he could bear travelling better in the cool hour of the morning 
than at any other time. But while he was talking with his venerable host and thanking him for his kind attentions, Emily observed his countenance change, and, before she could reach him, he fell back in his chair. In a few moments he recovered from the sudden faintness that had come over him, but felt so ill that he perceived himself unable to set out, and, having remained a little while, struggling against the pressure of indisposition, he begged he might be helped upstairs to bed. This request renewed all the terror which Emily had suffered on the preceding evening, but though scarcely able to support herself under the sudden shock it gave her, she tried to conceal her apprehension from Saint-Aubert, and gave her trembling arm to assist him to the door of his chamber. When he was once more in bed, he desired that Emily, who was then weeping in her own room, might be called, and, as she came, he waved his hand for every other person to quit the apartment. When they were alone, he held out his hand to her, and fixed his eyes upon her countenance, with an expression so full of tenderness and grief that all her fortitude forsook her, and she burst into an agony of tears. Saint-Aubert seemed to be struggling to acquire firmness, but was still unable to speak. He could only press her hands, and check the tears that stood trembling in his eyes. At length he commanded his voice. "'My dear child,' said he, trying to smile through his anguish. "'My dear Emily,' and paused again. He raised his eyes to heaven, as if in prayer, and then, in a firmer tone, and with a look in which tenderness of the father was dignified by the pious solemnity of the saint, he said, "'My dear child, I would soften the painful truth I have to tell you, but I find myself quite unequal to the art. Alas, I would, at this moment, conceal it from you, but that it would be most cruel to deceive you. It cannot be long before we must part. Let us talk of it, that our thoughts and our prayers may prepare us to bear it.' His voice faltered, while Emily, still weeping, pressed his hand close to her heart, which swelled with a convulsive sigh, but she could not look up. Let me not waste these moments, said Saint-Aubert, recovering himself. I have much to say. There is a circumstance of solemn consequence, which I have to mention, and a solemn promise to obtain from you. When this is done, I shall be easier. You have observed, my dear, how anxious I am to reach home, but know not all my reasons for this. Listen to what I am going to say. Yet stay, before I say more, give me this promise, a promise made to your dying father. Saint-Aubert was interrupted. Emily, struck by his last words, as if for the first time, with conviction of his immediate danger, raised her head. Her tears stopped, and, gazing at him for a moment with an expression of unutterable anguish, a slight convulsion seized her, and she sunk senseless in her chair. Saint-Aubert's cries brought La Vosin and his daughter to the room, and they administered every means in their power to restore her, but for a considerable time without effect. When she recovered, Saint-Aubert was so exhausted by the scene he had witnessed that it was many minutes before he had strength to speak. He was, however, somewhat relieved by a cordial which Emily gave him, and, being again alone with her, he exerted himself to tranquilize her spirits, and to offer her all the comfort of which her situation admitted. She threw herself into his arms, wept on his neck, and grief made her so insensible to all he said, he ceased to offer the alleviations which he himself could not at this moment feel, and mingled his silent tears with hers. Recalled at length to a sense of duty, she tried to spare her father from a farther view of her suffering, and quitting his embrace dried her tears and said something, which she meant for consolation. My dear Emily, replied Saint-Aubert, my dear child, we must look up with humble confidence to that being who has protected and comforted us in every danger and in every affliction we have known, to whose eyes every moment of our lives has been exposed. He will not, he does not forsake us now. I feel his consolation in my heart. I shall leave you, my child, still in his care, and though I depart from this world, I shall still be in his presence. Nay, weep not again, my Emily. In death there is nothing new or surprising, since we all know that we are born to die. 
and nothing terrible to those who can confide in an all-powerful god had my life been spared now after a very few years in the course of nature i must have resigned it old age with all its train of infirmity its privations and its sorrows would have been mine and then at last death would have come and called forth the tears you now shed rather my child rejoice that i am saved from such suffering and that i am permitted to die with mind unimpaired and sensible of the comforts of faith and resignation st herbert paused fatigued with speaking emily again endeavoured to assume the air of composure and in replying to what he had said tried to soothe him with a belief that he had not spoken in vain when he had reposed for a while he resumed the conversation let me return said he to a subject which is very near my heart i said i had a solemn promise to receive from you let me receive it now before i explain the chief circumstance which it concerns there are others of which your peace requires that you should rest in ignorance promise then that you will perform exactly what i shall enjoin emily awed by the earnest solemnity of his manner dried her tears and had begun again to flow in spite of her efforts to suppress them and looking eloquently at st aubert bound herself to do whatever he should require by a vow at which she shuddered yet knew not why he proceeded i know you too well my emily to believe that you would break any promise much less one thus solemnly given your assurance gives me peace and the observance of it of the utmost importance to your tranquillity hear then what i am going to tell you the closet which adjoins my chamber at la vallee has a sliding board in the floor you will know it by the remarkable knot in the wood and by its being the next board except one to the wainscot which fronts the door at the distance of about a yard from that end nearer the window you will perceive the line across it as if the plank had been joined the way to open it is this press your foot under the line the end of the board will then sink and you may slide it with ease beneath the other below you will see a hollow place st aubert paused for breath and emily sat fixed in deep attention you understand these directions my dear said he emily though scarcely able to speak assured him that she did when you return home then he added with a deep sigh at the mention of her return home all the melancholy circumstances that must attend this return rushed upon her fancy she burst into convulsive grief, and st aubert himself affected beyond the resistance of the fortitude which he had at first summoned wept with her after some moments he composed himself my dear child said he be comforted when i am gone you will not be forsaken i leave you only in the more immediate care of that providence which has never yet forsaken me do not afflict me with this excess of grief rather teach me by your example to bear my own he stopped again and emily the more she endeavoured to restrain her emotion found it less possible to do so st aubert who now spoke with pain resumed the subject that closet my dear when you return home go to it and beneath the board i have described you will find a packet of written papers attend to me now for that promise you have given particularly relates to what i shall direct these papers you must burn and solemnly i command you without examining them emily's surprise for a moment overcame her grief and she ventured to ask why this must be st aubert replied that if it had been right for him to explain his reasons her late promise would have been unnecessarily extracted it is sufficient for you my love to have a deep sense of the importance of observing me in this instance st aubert proceeded under the board you will also find about two hundred louis d'ors wrapped in a silk purse indeed it was to secure whatever money might be in the chateau that this secret place was contrived at a time when the province was overrun by troops of men who took advantage of the tumults and became plunderers but i have yet another promise to receive from you which is that you will never whatever may be your future circumstances sell the chateau st aubert even enjoined her whenever she might marry to make it an article of the contract that the chateau should always be hers he then gave her a more minute account of her present circumstances than he had yet done adding 
The two hundred louis, with what money you will find in my purse, is all the ready money I have to leave you. I have told you how I am circumstanced with Monsieur Montville in Paris. Ah, my child, I leave you poor. But not destitute, he added after a long pause. Emily could make no reply to the things he now said, but knelt at the bedside with her face upon the quilt, weeping over the hand she held there. After this conversation, the mind of Saint-Aubert appeared to be much more at ease. But, exhausted by the effort of speaking, he sunk into a kind of doze, and Emily continued to watch and weep beside him, till a gentle tap at the chamber door aroused her. It was La Voisin, come to say, that a confessor from the neighboring convent was below, ready to attend Saint-Aubert. Emily would not suffer her father to be disturbed, but desired that the priest might not leave the cottage. When Saint-Aubert awoke from his doze, his senses were confused, and it was some moments before he recovered them sufficiently to know that it was Emily who sat beside him. He then moved his lips and stretched forth his hand to her, as she received which she sank back in her chair, overcome by the impression of death on his countenance. In a few minutes he recovered his voice, and Emily then asked if he wished to see the confessor. He replied that he did, and when the Holy Father appeared, she withdrew. They remained alone together above half an hour. When Emily was called in, she found Saint-Aubert more agitated than when she had left, and she gazed with a slight degree of resentment at the friar as the cause of this, who, however, looked mildly and mournfully at her, and turned away. Saint-Aubert, in a tremulous voice, said he wished her to join in prayer with him, and asked if La Voisin would do so too. The old man and his daughter came in. They both wept and knelt with Emily around the bed, while the Holy Father read in a solemn voice the service of the dying. Saint-Aubert lay with serene countenance, and seemed to join fervently in the devotion, while tears often stole from beneath his closed eyelids, and Emily's sobs more than once interrupted the service. When it was concluded, an extreme unction had been administered, the friar withdrew. Saint-Aubert then made a sign for La Voisin to come nearer. He gave him his hand, and was, for a moment, silent. At length he said, in a trembling voice, My good friend, our acquaintance has been short long enough to give you an opportunity of showing me much kind attention. I cannot doubt that you will extend this kindness to my daughter when I am gone. She will have need of it. I entrust her to your care during the few days she will remain here. I need say no more. You know the feelings of a father, for you have children. Mine would be, indeed, severe, if I had less confidence in you. He paused. La Voisin assured him, and his tears bore testimony to his sincerity, that he would do all he could to soften her affliction, and that, if Saint-Aubert wished, he would even attend her to Gascony, an offer so pleasing to Saint-Aubert that he had scarcely the words to acknowledge his sense of the old man's kindness or to tell him that he accepted it. The scene that followed between Saint-Aubert and Emily affected La Voisin so much that he quitted the chamber, and she was again left alone with her father, whose spirit seemed fainting fast, but neither his senses nor his voice yet failed him, and, at intervals, he employed much of these last awful moments in advising his daughter as to her future conduct. Perhaps he had never thought more justly or expressed himself more clearly than he did now. Above all, my dear Emily, said he, do not indulge in the pride of fine feelings, the romantic error of amiable minds. Those who really possess sensibility ought early to be taught that it is a dangerous quality which is continually extracting the excessive misery or delight from every surrounding circumstance. And since in our passage through the world painful circumstances occur more frequently than pleasing ones, and since our sense of evil is, I fear, more acute than our sense of good, we have become the victims of our feelings, unless we can in some degree command them. I know you will say, for you are young, my Emily, I know you will say that you are contented sometimes to suffer, rather than give up your refined sense of happiness at others. But when your mind has long been harassed by vicissitudes, you will be content to rest, and you will then recover from your delusion. 
you will perceive that the phantom of happiness is exchanged for the substance for happiness arises in the state of peace out of tumult it is of a temperate and uniform nature and can no more exist in a heart that is continually alive to minute circumstances than in one that is dead to feeling you see my dear that though i would guard you against the dangers of sensibility i am not an advocate of apathy at your age i should have said that is a vice more hateful than all the errors of sensibility and i say so still i call it a vice because it leads to positive evil in this however it does no more than the ill-governed sensibility which by such a rule might also be called a vice but the evil of the former is of more general consequence i have exhausted myself said st aubert feebly and have wearied you my emily but on a subject so important to your future comfort i am anxious to be perfectly understood emily assured him that his vice was most precious to her and that she would never forget it or cease from endeavouring to profit by it st aubert smiled affectionately and sorrowfully upon her i repeat it said he i would not teach you to become insensible if i could i would only warn you of the evils of susceptibility and point out how you may avoid them beware my love i conjure you of that self-delusion which has been fatal to the peace of many persons beware of priding yourself on the gracefulness of sensibility if you yield to this vanity your happiness is lost for ever always remember how much more valuable is the strength of fortitude than the grace of sensibility do not however confound fortitude with apathy apathy cannot know the virtue remember too that one act of beneficence one act of real usefulness is worth all the abstract sentiment in the world sentiment is a disgrace instead of an ornament unless it lead us to good actions the miser who thinks himself respectable merely because he possesses wealth and thus mistakes the means of doing good with the actual accomplishment of it is not more blameful than a man of sentiment without active virtue he may have observed persons who delight so much in this sort of sensibility to sentiment which excludes that to the cause of any practical virtue that they turn from the distressed and because their sufferings are painful to be contemplated do not endeavour to relieve them how despicable is that humanity which can be contented to pity where it might assuage st aubert some time after spoke of madame charon his sister let me inform you of a circumstance that nearly affects your welfare he added we have you know had little intercourse for some years but as she is now your only female relation i have thought it proper to consign you to her care as you will see in my will till you are of age and to recommend you to her protection afterwards she is not exactly the person to whom i would have committed my emily but i had no alternative and i believe her to be upon the whole a good kind of woman i need not recommend it to your prudence my love to endeavour to conciliate her kindness you will do it for his sake who has so often wished to do so for yours emily assured him that whatever he requested she would religiously perform to the utmost of her ability alas she added in a voice interrupted by sighs that will soon be all which remains for me it will be almost my only consolation to fulfil your wishes st aubert looked up silently in her face as if would have spoken but his spirit sunk a while and his eyes became heavy and dull she felt that look at her heart my dear father she exclaimed and then checking herself pressed his hand closer and hid her face with her handkerchief her tears were concealed but st aubert heard her convulsive sobs his spirits returned oh my child said he faintly let my consolation be yours i die in peace for i know that i am about to return to the bosom of my father who will still be your father when i am gone always trust in him my love and he will support you in these moments as he supports me emily could only listen and weep but the extreme composure of his manner and the faith and hope he expressed somewhat soothed her anguish yet whenever she looked upon his emaciated countenance and saw the lines of death beginning to prevail over it saw his sunk eyes still bent on her 
and their heavy lids pressing to a close, there was a pang in her heart, such as defied expression, though it required filial virtue, like hers, to forbear the attempt. He desired once more to bless her. Where are you, my dear? said he, as he stretched forth his hands. Emily had turned to the window, that he might not perceive her anguish. She now understood that his sight failed him. When he had given her his blessing, and it seemed to be the last effort of an expiring life, he sunk back on his pillow. She kissed his forehead. The damps of death had settled there, and forgetting her fortitude for a moment, her tears mingled with them. Saint-Aubert lifted his eyes. The spirit of a father had returned to them, but it quickly vanished, and he spoke. No more. Saint-Aubert lingered till about three o'clock in the afternoon, and thus gradually sinking into death, he expired without a struggle or a sigh. Emily was led from the chamber by La Voisin and his daughter, who did what they could to comfort her. The old man sat and wept with her. Agnes was more erroneously officious. End of Volume 1 Chapter 7